This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So um, it's my great pleasure tonight to introduce Joyce Carol Oates, or actually not introduce her as much as welcome and praise. Um, as you know, Joyce has worked as a novelist, a writer of short stories and novellas. She's a poet, a dramatist, an essayist, an author of children's books, and editor. So summarizing her, as you may imagine, is a little daunting. Um, Beverly told me last week that uh, she had tried and failed to fit all of Joyce's awards on one sheet of paper. So as for the life and work, I'm not even going to try um, and as we sometimes say, and in this case it's really true, she needs no introduction. Um, I do want to tell you, though, that I teach her work in class every semester. I was thinking this morning that when you read and reread a writer's work like that over years and years, it becomes a part of you. I know with certainty that as someone from the other side of the world who first read her work in a foreign landscape, my vision and understanding of America is unmistakably Otsian. Joycean? I don't know. She catches something essential and elusive about this country like nobody else. I mean, its idealism and strange naivete and hopefulness, its violence, the sheer mind bending scale of its countryside, its economy, its politics, and also the particular virtues and weirdness of its energy and ambition. There's a moment in a story of hers when a young girl named Connie, who is going through a particularly brutal trauma at that moment, looks out at the familiar landscape in front of her family home. Of course, she's seen this vista countless times, but now she steps out into, quote, the vast sunlit reaches of the land, so much land that Connie had never seen before and did not recognize except to know that she was going to it, end quote. This sudden unfamiliarity with what, has, with what one has seen before, that epiphanic strangeness, is something that I always cherish and always find in Joyce's work. And so I want to say thank you and welcome. Thank you very much for the gracious introduction. This is actually my second time reading in this wonderful room. And it all came back to me. I had been here two years ago. I sat with Mark Twain out there, and we had, and we had our picture taken. And that's sort of an iconic picture that I look at once in a while with great pleasure. And now I'm back again, and I'm very thrilled to be here. And it's Valentine's Day, which is symbolic of something. It's such a, it's such a large room, I'm not sure that I can somehow relate and... My brain is sort of unable to deal with the periphery vision here. Well, I'm going to be reading a story that is actually an appropriate story for Valentine's Day. It's about a kind of love. It's not a, it's not a conventional love, and it won't seem to you at first to be a love story. It would seem, I think, only in retrospect to have been a love story, and not between a male and female Figure, but between two girls or sisters who are twins, actually, two young girls who basically, if you had asked them if they liked each other, they might have said no. But something happens to them, and we see that they're bonded in a way that's very deep. I think that the bonds of emotion between us 
are not really susceptible to the rational mind and you can think quite clearly and reasonably about someone and maybe have a lot of criticism of that person or even be at a distance, but there may be a link and a bond with that person so deep that you're astounded at how powerful and how, how powerful the emotions are that link you. So stories about that, which I think much of art is about these undercurrents and these undertoes, uh, sometimes in contrast to what we think and the way we may behave on a casual and daily basis. The story is called Heat, and I wrote it a few years ago. I have not read it very often, but I have to, pre- I have to introduce it by saying that it was structurally... Uh, challenging to me. I wanted to write a story about a trauma that is actually never really dramatized. It's it's alluded to and one can imagine it, but one can't really imagine it because it's unspeakable. It's an unspeakable something at the essence, the essence or the luminous center, and it can't be spoken of. And so the person who's talking is a woman now maybe a middle age, she could be in her 30s or a little older, and she's remembering something that happened not to her but to friends of hers when, she, when they were all girls. But she's remembering it not in a linear way, she's remembering it in sort of floating passages of images and impressionistic thoughts and little exchanges of dialogue as if they're floating. And I took the idea, at the time I was playing piano quite a bit, which I'm afraid I'm not any longer, but I spent a lot of time at the piano. And there are works for the piano by Henry Cowell, some of you probably are aware of, and other experimental composers for the piano that are what are called tone clusters, where you're strumming, you're, you're not exactly playing piano, but you're doing things for the piano's a percussive instrument and played without a pedal. So when you're striking chords and you lift your hands, there's no memory, like there's no pedal, there's no resonance. So I've thought about that as an idea for a story where the memory is traumatized and she's circling around it, but there's no resonance. So there's a kind of strange naivete or floating quality to her, her recollection. She would be someone who seems to hold the key to some secret but who can't articulate it herself so that the viewer or the listener or the reader maybe knows more than the speaker. So these are all things that I was experimenting with. And because it's in these, pa- these paragraphs, I'll pause between them and don't feel there's any causal connection as in a conventional story. It's not, it doesn't have that linear development. Heat. It was midsummer, the heat rippling above the macadam roads. Cicadas screaming out of the trees and the sky like pewter glaring. The days were the same day, like the shallow mud-brown river moving always in the same direction, but so slow you couldn't see it. Except for Sunday, church in the morning, then the fat Sunday newspaper, the color comics, and newsprint on your fingers. Rhea and Rhoda Kunkel went flying on their rusted old bicycles down the long hill toward the railroad yard, Whipple's ice, the scrubby pasture land where dairy cows grazed, 
They'd stolen $6 from their own grandmother who loved them. They were 11 years old. They were identical twins. They basked in their power. Rhea and Rhoda Kunkel, it was always Rhea and Rhoda, never Rhoda and Rhea. I couldn't say why. You just wouldn't say the names that way. Not even the teachers at school would say them that way. We went to see them in the funeral parlor where they were waked. We were made to. The twins in twin caskets, white, smooth, gleaming, perfect as plastic, with white satin lining puckered like the inside of a fancy candy box. And the waxy white lilies and the smell of talcum powder and perfume. The room was crowded. There was only one way in and one out. Rhea and Rhoda were the same girl. They'd wanted it that way. Only looking from one to the other could you see they were two. The heat was gauzy. You had to push your way through like swimming. On their bicycles, Rhea and Rhoda flew through it, hardly noticing, from their grandmother's place on Main Street to the end of South Main, where the paved road turned to gravel, leaving town. That was the summer before seventh grade, when they died. Death was coming for them, but they didn't know. They thought the same thoughts sometimes at the same moment, had the same dream and went all day trying to remember it, bringing it back like something you'd be hauling out of water on a tangled line. We watched them. We were jealous. None of us had a twin. Sometimes they were serious and sometimes remembering they shrieked and laughed like they were being killed. They stole things out of desks and lockers, but if you caught them, they'd hand them right back. It was like a game. There were three Flora fans in the funeral parlor that I could see, tall, whirring fans with propeller blades turning to keep the warm air moving. Strange little gusts came from all directions, making your eyes water. By this time, Roger Whipple was arrested, taken into police custody. No one had hurt him. He would never stand trial. He was ruled mentally unfit. He would never be released from confinement. He died there in the state psychiatric hospital years later and was brought back home to be buried. The body of him, I mean, his earthly remains. Rhea and Rhoda Kunkel were buried in the same cemetery, the First Methodist. The cemetery is just a field behind the church. In the caskets, the dead girls did not look like anyone we knew, really. They were placed on their backs with their eyes closed and their mouths, the way you don't always in life when you're sleeping. Their faces were so small. Every eyelash showed so perfect. Like angels, everyone was saying, it was strange, it was so. I stared and stared. What had been done to them, the lower parts of them didn't show in the caskets. Roger Whipple worked for his father at Whipple's Ice. In the newspaper, it stated he was 19. He'd gone to DeWitt Clinton until he was 16. My mother's friend Sadie taught there and remembered him from the special education class. A big, slow, sweet-faced boy with these big hands and feet, thighs like hams. A shy, gentle boy with good manners and a hushed voice. Oh, he wasn't simple-minded exactly like the others in that class. He was watchful. He held back. Roger Whipple in overalls squatting at the rear of his father's truck, one of the older brothers drove. There would come the sound of the truck in the driveway, the heavy block of ice smelling of cold, ice tongs over his shoulder. He was strong, round-shouldered like an older man, never staggered or grunted, never dropped anything. 
Pale, washed-looking eyes lifted out of a big face, a soft mouth wanting to smile. We giggled and looked away. They said he'd never been the kind of hurt, even an animal. All the whipples swore. Sucking ice, the cold goes straight into your jaws and deep into the bone. People spoke of them as the Kunkel twins. Mostly nobody tried to tell them apart. Homely, corkscrew, twisty girls you wouldn't know would turn up so quiet and solemn and almost beautiful, perfect little doll's faces with the freckles plotted over, touches of rouge on the cheeks and mouths. I was tempted to whisper to them kneeling by the coffins, Hey, Rhea, hey, Rhoda, wake up! They had loud, slip-sliding voices that were the same voice. They weren't shy. They were always first in line, one behind you and one in front of you, and you'd better be wary of some trick. Flamey orange hair and the bleached-out skin that goes with it, freckles like dirty raindrops splashed on their faces, sharp green eyes they'd bug out until you begged them to stop. Places meant to be serious, Rhea and Rhoda have a hard time sitting still. In church, in school, a sideways glance between them could do it, jamming their knuckles into their mouths, choking back giggles. Sometimes laughing escaped through their fingers like steam hissing. Sometimes it came out like snorting, and then none of us could hold back. The worst time was an assembly, the principal up there telling us that Miss Flagler had died. We would all miss her. Tears shining in the woman's eyes behind her goggle glasses, and one of the twins gave a breathless little snort. You could feel it like flames running down the whole roll of girls, and none of us could stop giggling. Sometimes the word tickle was enough to get us going, just that word. I never dreamt about Rhea and Rhoda so strange in the casket, sleeping out in the middle of a room where people could stare at them, shed tears, and pray over them. I never dream about actual things, only things I don't know, places I've never been and people I've never seen. Sometimes the person I am in a dream isn't me. Who it is, I don't know. <coughs> Rhea and Rhoda bounced up the drive behind Whipple's ice. They were laughing like crazy and didn't mind the potholes jarring their teeth or the clouds of dust. If they'd had the same dream the night before, the hot sunlight erased it entirely. When death comes for you, sometimes you know, and sometimes you don't. Roger Whipple was by himself in the barn working. Kids went down there to beg him for ice to suck or throw around, or they'd tease him, not out of meanness, but for something to do. It was slow, the days not changing in the summer, heat sometimes all night long. He was happy with children that age. He was that age himself in his head. Sixth grade learning abilities, as the newspaper stated, though he could add and subtract quickly. Other kinds of arithmetic gave him trouble. People were saying afterward he'd always been strange, watchful like he was those thick, soft lips. The Whipples did wrong to let him run loose. Oh, they said he'd always been a good gentle boy and went to Sunday school and sat still and never gave anybody any trouble. He collected Bible cards, hid them away under his mattress for safekeeping. Mr. Whipple started in early disciplining him the way you might discipline a big dog or a horse, not letting the creature know he has any power to be himself exactly, not giving him the opportunity to test his will. 
Neighbors said the Whipples worked him like a horse, in fact. The older brothers were the most merciless. And why they all wore coveralls, heavy denim, and long legs on days so hot, nobody knew. The thermometer above the first Midland Bank read 98 degrees Fahrenheit on noon of that day, my mother said. Nights afterward, my mother would hug me before I went to bed, pressing my face hard against her breast and whispering things I didn't hear, like praying to Jesus to love and protect her little girl and keep her from harm, but I didn't hear. I shut my eyes tight and endured it. Sometimes we prayed together, all of us or just my mother and me kneeling by my bed. Even then, I knew she was a good mother. There was this girl she loved as her daughter. That was me, and loved more than that girl deserved. There was nothing I could do about it. Mrs. Kunkel would laugh and roll her eyes over the twins. In that house, they were double trouble. You would hear it all the time like a joke on the radio that keeps coming back. I wondered, did she pray with them? I wondered, would they let her? In a long night, you forget about the day. It's like the other side of the world. Then the sun is there, the heat, and you forget. We were running through the field behind school, a place where people dump things sometimes, and there was a dead dog there. A collie with a beautiful fur, but his eyes were gone from the sockets, and the maggots had got him where somebody tried to lift him with her foot. And when Rhea and Rhoda saw, they screamed a single scream and hid their eyes. They did nice things. They gave their friends candy bars and nail polish, some novelty keychains they'd taken from somewhere, movie stars' pictures framed in plastic. In the movies, they'd share a box of popcorn, not noticing where one or the other left off, and a girl who wasn't any sister of theirs sat. Oh, once they made me strip off my clothes when we crawled under the Kunkel's veranda. This was a large, hollowed-out space where the earth dropped away. You could sit without bumping your head. It was cool and smelled of dirt and stone. Rhea said all of a sudden, strip, and Rhoda said at once, strip, come on. So what happened, they wouldn't let me out unless I took off my clothes, my shirt and shorts, yes, and my panties, too. Come on, they said, whispering and giggling. They were blocking the way out, so I had no choice. I was scared, but I was laughing, too. This is to show our power over you, they said. But they stripped, too, just like me. You have power over others you don't realize until you test it. Under the Kunkos veranda, we stared at each other, but we didn't touch each other. My teeth chattered because what if somebody saw us? Some boy or Mrs. Kunkel. I was scared, but I was happy too. Except for our faces, their face and mine, we could all be the same girl. The Kunkel family lived in one side of a big old clapboard house by the river. You could hear the trucks rattling on the bridge, shifting their gears. Mrs. Kunkel had eight children. Rhea and Rhoda were the youngest. Our mothers wondered why Mrs. Kungo had let herself go. She had a moon-shaped pretty face, but her hair was frizzed bratty. She must have weighed 200 pounds, sweated, and breathed so hard in the warm weather. They'd known her in school. Mr. Kungo worked construction for the county. Summer evenings after work, he'd be sitting on the veranda drinking beer, flicking cigarette butts out into the yard. You'd be fooled almost thinking they were fireflies. He went bare-chested in the heat, his upper body dark like stained wood. Flat little purplish nipples inside his chest hair, the girls giggled to see. Mr. Kunkel teased us all. He'd mix Rhea and Roa up the way he mixed the rest of us up, like it was too much trouble to keep names straight. Mr. Kunkel was in police custody. He didn't even come to the wake. 
Mrs. Kunkel was there in rolls of chin fat that glistened with sweat and tears, the makeup on her face so caked and discolored you were embarrassed to look. It scared me the way she grabbed me as soon as my parents and I came in, hugging me against her big balloon breast, sobbing, and all the strength went out of me. I couldn't push away. The police had Mr. Kunkel for his own good, they said. He'd gone to the Whipple's though the murderer had been taken away, saying he would kill anybody he could get his hands on. The old man, the brothers, they were all responsible, he said. His little girls were dead. Tear them apart with his bare hands, he said. But he had a tire iron. Did it mean anything special? Was it an accident? Rhea and Rhoda had taken six dollars from their grandmother an hour before? Because death was coming for them. It had to happen one way or another. If you believe in God, you believe that. And if you don't believe God, it's obvious. Their grandmother lived upstairs over a shoe store downtown in the apartment looking out. They'd bicycle down there for something to do. She'd give them grape juice or lemonade, try to keep them for a while, a lonely old lady. But she was nice. She was always nice to me. It was kind of nasty of Rhea and Rhoda to steal from her, but they were like that. One was in the kitchen talking with her, and whether I didn't plan or anything, the other went to use the bathroom, then slipped into her bedroom, got the money out of her purse like it was something she did every day of the week, and that easy. On the stairs going down to the street, Rhoda whispered to Rhea, What did you do? Knowing that Rhea had done something she had not to have done, but not knowing what it was, or anyway, how much money it was. They started in poking each other, trying to hold the giggles back until they were safe away. On their bicycles, they stood high on the pedals, coasting, going down the hill, but not using their brakes. What did you do? Oh, what did you do? Rhea and Rhoda always said they could never be apart. If one didn't know exactly where the other one was, that one could die, or the other one could die, or both. Once they'd gotten some money from somewhere they wouldn't say where and paid for us all to go to the movies and ice cream afterward. You could read the newspaper articles twice through and still not know what he did. Adults talked about it for a long time, but not so we could hear. I thought probably he'd use an ice pick. Or maybe I heard somebody guess who didn't know any more than me. We liked it that Rhea and Rhoda had been killed and all the stuff in the newspaper and everybody talking about it, but we didn't like it that they were dead. We missed them. Later in 10th grade, the Kaufman twins moved into our school district, Doris and Deanne, but it wasn't the same thing. Roger Whipple said he didn't remember any of it. Whatever he did, he didn't remember. At first, everybody thought he was lying. Then they had to accept it as true. Doctors from the state hospital examined him. He said over and over he hadn't done anything, and he didn't remember the twins there that afternoon, but he couldn't explain why their bicycles were where they were at the foot of his stairway, and he couldn't explain why he'd taken a bath in the middle of the day. The Whipples admitted that it wasn't a practice of Rogers or of any of them, ever, a bath in the middle of the day. Roger Whipple was a clean boy, though. His hands were always scrubbed, so he actually noticed swinging the block of ice off the truck and inside the kitchen, helping to set it in the ice box. They said he'd go crazy if he got bits of straw under his nails from the ice house. He'd been taught to shave, and he shaved every morning without fail. They said the sight of the beard growing in and the scratchy feel of it seemed to scare him. 
A few years later, his sister Linda told us how Roger was built like a horse. She was our age, a lot younger than him. She made a gesture toward her crotch, as so we'd know what she meant. She'd happened to see him a few times, she said, by accident. There he was squatting in the dust, laughing, his head lowered, watching Rhea and Rhoda circle him on their bicycles. It was a rough game where the twins saw how close they could come to hitting him. Brushing him with a brake, with the bike fenders, and he'd lunge out, not seeming to notice if his fingers hit the spokes. It was all happening so fast, you maybe couldn't feel pain. Out back of the ice house, the yard blended in with the yard of the old railroad depot next door that wasn't used anymore. It was burning hot in the sun, dust rose in cloud behind the girls. Pretty soon they got bored with the game, though Roger Whipple, even in his heavy overhauls, wanted to keep going. He was red-faced with all the excitement. He was a boy who loved to laugh and didn't have much chance. Rhea said she was thirsty. She wanted some ice. So Roger Whipple scrambled right up and went to get a big, a big bag of ice cubes. He hadn't any more sense than that. They sucked on the ice cubes and fooled around with them. He was panting and lolling his tongue, pretending to be a dog. And Rhea and Rhoda cried, Here, doggy, here, doggy, doggy. Tossing ice cubes at Roger Whipple, he tried to catch in his mouth. That went on for a while. In the end, the tins just dumped the rest of the ice onto the dirt. Then Roger Whipple was saying, He had some secret things that belonged to his brother, Eamon. He would show them, hidden under his bed mattress. Would they like to see what the things were? He wasn't one who could tell Rhea from Rhoda or Rhoda from Rhea. There was a way some of us knew the freckles on Rhea's face were a little darker. Rhea's eyes were just a little darker than Rhoda's. But you'd have to see the two side by side with no clowning around to know. Rhea said, okay, she'd like to see the secret thing. She let her bike fall where she was straddling it. Roger Ripple said he could only take one of them upstairs to his room at a time. He didn't say why. Okay, said Rhea. Of the Kunkel twins, Rhea always had to be first. She'd been born first, she said, and weighed a pound or two more. Roger Ripple's room was in a strange place on the second floor of the Whipple house above an unheated storage space that had been added after the main part of the house was built. There was a way of getting to the room from the outside, up a flight of rickety wood stairs. That way Roger could get in and out of his room without going through the rest of the house. People said the Whipples had him live there like some animal. They didn't want him tramping through the house, but they denied it. Roger Ripple weighed about 190 pounds that day. In the hospital, he swelled up like a balloon, people said. Bloated from the drugs, his skin was soft and white as bread dough, and his hair fell out. He was an old man when he died at 31. Exactly why he died, the Whipples never knew. The hospital just told them his heart had stopped in his sleep. Rhoda shaded her eyes watching her sister running up the stairs with Roger Whipple behind her and felt the first pinch of fear that something was wrong or was going to be wrong. She called after them in a whining voice that she wanted to come along too. She didn't want to wait down there all alone, but Rhea just called back to her to be quiet and wait her turn. So Rhoda waited, kicked at the ice cubes melting in the dirt, and after a while she got restless and shouted up to them. The door was shut. The shade on the window was drawn, saying she was going home. Damn them, she was sick of waiting, she said, and she was going home. But nobody came to the door or looked out the window. It was like the place was empty. 
Wasps had built one of those nests that looked like mud and layers under the eaves, and the only sound was wasps. Rhoda bicycled toward the road so anybody who was watching would think she was going home. She was thinking she hated Rita. She hated her damn twin sister. She wished she was dead and gone. God damn her. She was going home, and the first thing she'd tell their mother was that Rhea had stolen $6 from Grandma. She had in her pocket right at that minute. The Ripple House was an old farmhouse they'd tried to modernize by putting on red asphalt sodding. Downstairs, the rooms were big and drafty. Upstairs, they were small. Some of them unfinished and with bare floorboards, like Roger Ripple's room, which people would afterwards say, based on what the police said, was like an animal's pen, nothing in it but a bed shoved in a corner and some furniture and boxes and things. Mrs. Whipple stored there. Of the Whipples, there were seven in the family still living at home. Only Mrs. Whipple and her daughter Iris were home that afternoon. They said they hadn't heard a sound except for kids playing in the back. They swore it. Rhoda was bent on going home and leaving Rhea behind, but at the end of the driveway, something made her turn her bicycle wheel back. So if you were watching, you'd think she was just cruising around for something to do. A red-haired girl with whitey skin and freckles, skinny little body, pedaling fast and slow, then coasting and fast again, turning and dipping and crisscrossing her path, talking to herself as if she was angry. She hated Rhea. She was furious at Rhea, but feeling sort of scared, too, and sickish in the pit of her belly, knowing that she and Rhea shouldn't be in two places. Something might happen to one of them or to both. Some things you know. So she pedaled back to the house and laid her bike down in the dirt next to Rhea's. The bikes were old hand-me-downs. The kickstands were broken. You never would see just one of the twins' bicycles anywhere. You always saw both of them lay down on the ground and facing in the same direction, with the pedals in about the same position. Rhoda peered up to the second floor of the house, the shade drawn over the window, the door still closed. She called out, Rhea? Hey, Rhea! Starting up the stairs, making a lot of noise so they'd hear her, pulling on the railing as if to break it. Still, she was scared. But making noise like that and feeling so disgusted and mad helped to get stronger. And there was Roger Whipple with the door open, staring down at her, flush-faced and sweaty, as if he was scared too. He seemed to have forgotten her. He was wiping his hands on his overhauls. He just stared, a lemony light coming up in his eyes. Afterward, he would say he didn't remember anything, didn't remember. Big as a grown man, but round-shouldered, so it was hard to judge how tall he was or how old. His straw-colored hair falling in his eyes and his fingers twined together as if he was praying or trying with all his strength to keep his hands still. He didn't remember anything about the twins or anything in the room or in the icebox afterward, but he cried a lot. He acted scared and guilty and sorry, so they decided he shouldn't be put on trial. There was no point to it. Mrs. Whipple kept to the house afterward, never went out, not even to church or grocery shopping. She died of cancer just before Roger died. She'd loved him, she said. She always said none of it had been his fault, really. He wasn't the kind of boy even to hurt an animal. He loved kittens especially and was a good, sweet, obedient boy and religious too. And whatever happened, it must have been because those girls were teasing him. He had a lifetime of being teased and taunted, his heart broken by all the abuse, and something must have snapped that day. That was all. 
The Whipples were the ones, though, who called the police. Mr. Whipple found the girls' bodies back in the ice house, hidden under some straw and canvas. He found them around 9 o'clock that night with a flashlight. He knew, he said, the way Roger was acting and the fact that Kunkel girls were missing and word had gotten out. He knew, but he didn't know what he knew or what he would find. Roger taking a bath like that in the middle of the day and washing his hair and shaving for the second time and not answering when his mother spoke to him. Just sitting there staring at the floor as if he was listening to something no one else could hear. He knew, Mr. Whipple said. The hardest minute of his life was in the ice house lifting that canvas to see what was under it. He took it hard. He never recovered. He hadn't any choice but to think what a lot of people thought. It had been his fault. He was an old-time Methodist. He took all that seriously, but none of it helped him. He believed Jesus Christ was his personal Savior, and he never stopped loving Roger or turned his face from him. And if Roger did truly repent in his heart, he would be saved, and they would be reunited in heaven. All the Whipples reunited, he believed. But none of it helped him in his life. The ice house is still there, but boarded up and derelict. The Whipple's ice business ended long ago. Strangers live in the house. The yard is littered with rusting hulks of cars and pickup trucks. Some Whipples live scattered around the county, but none in town. The old, tri- the old train depot is still there. After I'd been married some years, I got involved with this man. I won't say his name. His name is not a name I say, but we would make what we would meet back there sometimes in that old lot that's all weeds and scrub trees. While this kid's on the edge of being drunk, I was crazy for this guy. I mean crazy, like I could hardly think of anybody but him or anything, but the two of us making love the way we did. With him deep inside me, I wanted never to stop. I whispered to him, and this went on for a long time, two or three years, then ended the way these things do. And looking back, I'm not able to recognize that woman as if she was someone, not even me, but a crazy woman I would despise, making so much of such a thing, risking her marriage and her kids finding out and her life room for such a thing, my God, the things people do. It's like living out a story that has to go its own way. Behind the ice house in this car, I think of Rhea and Rhoda and what happened that day upstairs in Roger Whipple's room and the funeral parlor with the twins like dolls laid out and her eyes like dolls' eyes, too, that shut when you tilt them back. One night when I wasn't asleep but wasn't awake, I saw my parents standing in the door of my bedroom watching me, and I knew their thoughts, how they were thinking of Rhea and Rhoda and of me, their daughter, wondering how they could keep me from harm, and there was no answer. In his car, in his arms, I'd feel my mind drift after we'd made love. And I saw Rhoda Kunkel hesitating on the stairs a few steps down from Roger Whipple. I saw her white-faced and scared but deciding to keep going anyway, pushing by Roger Whipple to get inside the room to find Rhea. She had to brush against him where he was standing as if he meant to block her way, but not having the nerve to exactly block her. And he was smelling of his body and breathing hard, but not an imitation of any dog now, not with his tongue flopping and lowing to make them laugh. Rhoda was asking, where is Rhea? She couldn't see it well in the fir- at first in the dark little cubby hole of a room because the sunshine had been so bright outside. Roger Whipple said Rhea had gone home. 
His voice sounded scratchy, as if it hadn't been used in some time. She'd gone home, he said, and Rhoda said right away, Rhea wouldn't go home without her. And Roger Whipple came toward her, saying, Yes, she did, yes, she did, as if he was getting angry. She wouldn't believe him. Rhoda was calling, Rhea, where are you? Stumbling against something on the floor, tangled with the bedclothes. Behind her was this big boy saying again and again, Yes, she did, yes, she did his voice rising, but it would never get loud enough so that anyone would hear and come save her. I wasn't there, but some things you know. Thank you. Is it customary to have questions and answers? Or Oh, okay. I'll be happy to try to answer any questions people have. I hope you can see that it was meant to be a Valentine's Day story. <laughs> and, and that the girls really were linked. Like the one girl could have gone. She could have bicycled away and been saved, but something drew her back. And she came back, and she went upstairs. And so the girl who's telling the story just keeps circling in that moment. It's like a moment of grace where one twin came back for the other because they always believed that if they were not together, they might die. Does anybody have any questions? Is there some reason that you didn't actually describe the murder scene? Well, the murder scene is not known to the narrator, so she has to imagine it. Like she says at one point, I think he probably used an ice pick. But in these days, which is uh, some decades ago, you would not know much. Like the newspaper would not say much. Adults would talk about it, but children would not know, and it was secret. So it's all bound up with the secrecy of adolescence, childhood. I respect that there was no mention of blood, given that an ice pick was Well, he washed, he took a bath. Well, we, we don't really know if he used an ice pit. You can ask questions about other things. You would have to talk about the story. <laughs> the story is sort of, you know, the story's finished. The story's published, so it's, it's not going to be changed. And, yeah, yes. <laughs> Pardon me, I didn't hear you. You mean did this actually happen? Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, I mean, the setting is very real to me. The setting is vividly real. It's in Lockport, New York. The the grandmother's place up some stairs and riding bicycles in the heat and the ice. The ice company and, and yeah, you know, the setting is very real. I love to write about things that have a very specific setting, and I suggest to my students that they try to do that because there's a, such a um, a kind of beauty, just a realism of putting a place in and memorializing the actual place. I think is one of the motives of art that we find very satisfying. Just that something's real. You're describing your background, your your hometown, your the, the way the world looked from your back, from your childhood window, that's all very beautiful, I think. Yes. Um, Melanie. You're so intimidatingly prolific that I'm curious about your process, like how, because I 
students always want to know about our process, so I'm sure. Do you have a number of words you write a day? Do you spend a certain time revising? I write uh, 67 and a half words a day. <laughs> and I stop right in the middle. <laughs> or maybe it's 600 or 6,067. Uh, no, I don't have any way of doing that. But uh, your question reminds me of Graham Greene. Maybe some of you know how compulsive he was as a, as a writer. He wrote maybe, um, anybody here remember, a thousand words? Was it only 500? Yeah, it's so bizarre. He wrote 500 words a day, but he counted the words, and he'd stop right in the middle of a sentence <laughs> in a very crucial, dramatic scene that suggests that he hated writing, and that was like pulling teeth. And 500 words a day is not all that much, but I guess it would add up. But I thought, uh, we all want to know how other people write because we want to know if anybody else is as crazy as we are. And always remember, Graham Greene is much crazier than anybody else. <laughs> I can't even imagine writing a scene and stopping after, and counting and stopping after 500 words. It's really bizarre. No, I really like to write. I like to write a lot. And I, if I could find a manuscript like under a toadstool or someplace in a drawer, uh, I would just take that manuscript and revise it and just be so excited. I get up in the morning all thrilled and, and excited about doing, about writing and using language to tell a story. What's difficult for me is the first draft. And the first draft is like, I'm building a bridge, but I don't know how to build a bridge. I mean, there must be a way that people build bridges, but you know, the, you, to build a bridge, you sort of have to already be on the other side and link it up. And it's a little difficult to build a bridge from one side, which is what you try to do when you're writing a first draft. So I spend a lot of time thinking, and I try to daydream and look out the window and tell myself the story in a cinematic form. And so when I get the story told n enough times, then I go and write it often in longhand in notes, and then I go to the computer. But I would recommend daydreaming and meditating and thinking as if you're seeing a little movie in your head before you write any words, because the first words you write may be paralyzing and intimidating, and then you may never be able to change them. I'm always interested in how other people write, too. Yes. Yes. When was the story written, and at what point in your life did you write it? Like, was there a significant connection between your personal life and the realization of the story? I'm not sure. I think I was interested in the tone clusters of Henry Cowell, and I wanted to write a story that would deal with something very emotional, but it would not have the emotions in a conventional way so that there wouldn't be any resonance. I mean, obviously there is some resonance because you do re the memory is in the story. The memory is not necessarily in, in a linear form. Well, all of our writing has some links with our emotions. Everything that we write is connected with what we're, the way we're living right now, but this was not a literal not a literal event. Yes? Yeah, I, I love the way you end the story uh, of, of what some things we just know and the way it echoes the, the moment of pulling the bodies back of, of he knew he knew, but he didn't know what he knew. I, I just was curious to hear more about the, these ideas of knowability in, in your work, because in other work I've read, there's this, there's this moment where, the, where a narrator or a character will know something. Uh, it, it's just yeah. play with it in an interesting way. I want to be 
Well, there are some times in our lives, there are not very many times in any one life, fortunately, where you look back and somebody you love very much is actually going to die. And at the time, you don't know it. So you may see that person for the last time and never see the person alive again. But then when you think back to that time, you almost wonder whether there was some, maybe there was a premonition. And that's why she thinks death was coming for them, but they didn't know it. And so when we look at our lives backward, sometimes there are signals and things that we weren't picking up, that we weren't picking up, you know. And I've had those experiences myself. And when I think back, I realize, well, why didn't I realize that? I should have known that was probably evident. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't get it. It was like it went over my head or around my head or something. And those times are so strange. So when you're writing, one of the acts of writing is this memorializing of a past where now you know what's going to happen. And sometimes it's so bitter or bittersweet, particularly like the last time you saw someone. And in writing memoir, that's particularly poignant. Obviously, this is fiction. But some of you may be writing memoir, and the great challenge for the memoirist is to evoke in the reader the emotions that you feel and you know are necessary because you respect your subject so much. And that's such a challenge. You can't write it in a flat or perfunctory or bland voice. It can't be like a summary or matter of fact. You have to somehow choose a language that commemorates and evokes that, that time. And that's very difficult. And so people get a little bit frightened. They're very frightened to write about subjects that are that, you know, close to the heart. And I notice in some of my students' writing, both here and at Princeton, there will be great ideas and potential for vivid scenes. But the scenes are leapt over. So the scenes are referred to, like seeing a father in a nursing home and a father has Alzheimer's, like seeing him for the first time hospitalized. Well, that is such a powerful and almost unspeakable situation that a young writer might leap past it and refer to it as if it already happened. But so it's challenging to take on these difficult things. And I once had a young writer working with me at Princeton. She was not a student, but just someone, a friend. She was probably in her 40s at the time, and she was fairly young. In a sense, she'd never published anything. And she was writing about the loss of her closest friend who died of cancer, of breast cancer. And she had one chapter with her friends in the hospital, and the next chapter was a funeral. And I said, excuse me, Annette, you left something out. And she looked at me and she said, oh, I couldn't possibly ever write about that. I said, I'm afraid you're going to have to. You're going to have to write that chapter. She said, oh, I can't do that. And she got tears in her eyes. She said, I just can't do it. So I said, you have to do that. <laughs> and I wrote a little card. On the front it said, I can't do it. And the back of the card was, yes, you can. Yes, you can. So she went away and she worked on it. And it became her first novel. And she's, she became a writer. But if she'd left that out, it would be like, you know, a flat tire or something. 
those hard things that are really painful are what make it's the pulse the pulse of art, and so one has to confront them. Maybe one more question. Yes. Um, so, in the story that you just read, um, the narrator talks about dreaming about things that she doesn't know, that she only dreams about things that she doesn't know. Um, I was just wondering, like, as a writer, like, how do you write about things that you just don't know? Like, how do you write about being in love when you've never been in love, or how do you write about losing a child if you've never lost a child? Um, so, where does like the imagination, like, where does that leap off from for you? Well, I think we all have dreams in which there are, there are characters who don't seem to be us. And um, the, the, the self may be much broader than the personality. I mean, I often have dreams that don't make any sense in my, my personal life at all, and they seem to be dreams of a certain vastness or, or almost conceptual dreams in which, oddly enough, I'm not even that interested in the subject. So. <laughs> It's almost as if there's a, a very wide person or personality there, and the, the, the ego is like a narrow beam, you know. And if you were in meditation or in psychoanalysis or doing some sort of uh, special, let's just say Zen meditation, you'd probably get parts of your personality activated that ordinarily are not. So a sympathy for other people and a an identification with other people, I think is very possible. Obviously, meeting people and talking to them, doing research, or traveling around, it, it, it activates these parts. I don't think it's that difficult, really. I would, I would not find it difficult even to write about dying. I mean, most of us, have, most of us haven't had that experience. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes you have a high fever, or you can't seem to wake up. You have a dream where you can't wake up or you've been very ill, you've been in the hospital, or you've had a powerful anesthetic. I mean, there, there are things that mimic death that probably come fairly close to it. You could probably write about that quite, quite compellingly, and then if you were mistaken, you would never know. <laughs> thank, thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.